Xi Jinping should not mess with Taiwan until we have achieved semiconductor independence, until the end of my first term, when I will lead us there. And after that, our commitments to Taiwan and our commitments to be willing to go to military conflict will change after that, because that's rationally in our self-interest. I want to mention four of the scripts and then talk about it's a date. Because I think actually what uh, Vivek uh, Ramaswamy has uh, has said is kind of classic America first without any of the qualifiers. And I think it's worth discussing because I think it's the wrong move, but I think a lot of people will see it as exactly the sort of thing we should be doing. And, and of course, the question gets down to what's, what's in our interest, our long-term interest, and, and so on. It's a great idea, and I think we're already started, but I guess we should mention this is This Week in Common Sense. It's where we talk about the five pieces. You've already mentioned five that you've written this week at thisiscommonsense.org. You call that program Common Sense with Paul Jacob. You've been doing it since 1999, and uh, we're going to try to cover, well, all five, but one especially today. You know, it's been pretty consequential stuff uh, when you have a presidential election in which uh, the former president has been indicted in four separate incidents. I believe the number of total indictments is like 99. So maybe there's maybe there's one more coming to get to triple digit uh, criminal charges. Um, and then you have, of course, the Biden crime family, which occupies the White House today. So uh, we we uh, we talk about uh, both of those cases, um, but of course, in many ways, the big issues of American policy uh, are not either of those instances. Uh, although that sort of uh, uh, corruption in all ways, shapes, and forms, and when we get to the point where uh, presidential candidates are being taken out by the state one way or another or not because of politics it's that's that's an ugly ground to to tread on so um it's it's a real problem and monday we had a very special prosecutor and uh it just pointed out that david weiss who is now the special uh prosecutor has been the prosecutor all along, has sort of claimed, even though others are saying, you know, uh, that's not what he told us, uh, who were actually investigating Hunter Biden. Uh, they said that he there were all kinds of limits. He said there were no limits. Well, if there were no limits, why is he now named a special prosecutor? And if you go to the piece, a very special prosecutor, you'll see some of the possible reasons in that it short circuits Congress and the investigation that James Comer from Kentucky, Republican, uh, has been has been leading and which seems to be producing some information for the public in terms of 20 million dollars roughly going to the Biden uh, family. So, you know, there's all kinds of evidence here. You always hear there's no evidence, but uh, take a read and there are links to more information if you <laughs> if you don't already have more information on this story than you'd ever want. Uh, and then we also uh, dealt with, on Friday, election challenge criminalized. And, you know, there's a, a just a ton of bad behavior by Donald Trump and by others in all of this. And, uh, and without going into, you know, without doing what I'm set up we were going to do, which is delving into every aspect of it, a lot of bad behavior. There is a difference between bad behavior and criminal behavior. And in reading this uh, indictment, in, in reading the entire transcript of that perfect phone call he made to Brad Raffensperger, who I happen to think is a uh, election integrity hero, both because of, of him saying to Donald Trump, yeah, I'm, I'm completely unmoved by your, by your arguments, but also the fact that he's been pushing for a lot of good things for a long time, including making it clear that only citizens should vote in all local, state, and national elections. 
in the United States of America, which happens to be the position I have. But he was pushing that 10 years ago when he was in the legislature. And uh, anyway, I, I digress. But uh, but that perfect phone call was an obnoxious phone call. And and let me just suggest without going too far out on the limb that Donald Trump's made a lot of obnoxious phone calls in his life. He's pushing somehow find I mean, there's all these reports of fraud. You know, there's got to be fraud. Go find it and find me these uh, enough votes that I get on the ballot. It's caddish. It's obnoxious. Uh, because he didn't seem to have any real evidence. Here's where you'd find them. But it's not criminal. And we see this a lot. I think there's some things in here, obviously, the classified document stuff. Um, there's some real culpability. I think about everything else that's been thrown against the wall against Donald Trump uh, is not going to stick. And it's garbage. And even if they get a conviction, it will be overruled uh, or overturned. Uh, when it's appealed up, but election challenge criminalized. And um, anyway, we, we, uh, we, well, I'll, I'll stop and move on. How do you like that? Right. Well, you can find out this is commonsense.org. That's if we, we mentioned these titles, they can all be found there. Yes. Then we also uh, talked about something that I think is worth people looking into and that's violence on the rise. That was Wednesday's piece. And uh, it, it just goes into some of the uh, uh, polling that shows that there are a large number of people, what I consider to be large, which is more than a few, who think that violence is okay if you're in the right and the other side's in the wrong. And I think, as we kind of intimate here in this piece, part of that is feeling like there's no decent process to work through, to make changes, to have discussions. The more we wall off speech, the more we make politics too cumbersome, dangerous, and expensive to participate in, the more all of our problems get worse. And this is Violence on the Rise, uh, August 15th, and um, at thisiscommonsense.org. And then what was the other one? Volcano denialism on Thursday. And this is such a good one. And I kind of, uh, if there was another one to talk about, this would be the one. Go read Volcano Denialism because here's the, the upshot. What's, why is it so hot? Well, you know, we could have asked that a lot of days on this planet throughout all of time. And... The answer today, of course, is because of global warming and climate change, and we have to do whatever the government says, and we have to stop fossil fuels, we have to return to the Stone Age, but the one thing about the Stone Age we won't return to is any level of freedom. <laughs> we'll instead have a big Gestapo policing everybody while we return to the Stone Age. That's, that's what we hear, and uh, we don't hear much about other possible impacts, and we talk here about a big impact it was the uh it was the the volcano that basically was in the ocean and uh and just was a massive thing that put all kinds of moisture into the air and that has an impact on climate change climate change <laughs> what am i saying well it does actually <laughs> i should have drank so much before i came to do this no uh it, it it's uh it has an effect on the climate. And and yet, no, I hadn't heard it before I bumped into this article that you sent me. And, uh, and I don't think most people have heard anything about this. We heard about the event, but of course, the, the media isn't, co isn't connecting the dots. And it'd be one thing if it was just, geez, they missed one. They didn't connect these dots here, shucks. Their job seems to be to not connect the dots. Their job is to connect dots sometimes where you're thinking, that's a funny dot to connect, and other times to not connect the dot. In other words, to leave us in the dark, because that's where they want us. The Washington Post's new, you know, pandemic Donald Trump uh, uh, slogan, 
democracy dies in darkness. It does. And that's where they're trying to keep us. Uh, so anyway, go go give it a read. Uh, links to more information, volcano denialism. Uh, there's a lot more that we're not being told. And I wanted to mention before we get to our uh, to the the you know meat and potatoes of uh, this podcast, I wanted to mention a couple of thoughts this week that I thought were particularly good. Uh, John Tyler, President of the United States, not recently. Patronage, he says, is the sword and cannon by which war may be made on the liberty of the human race. I really like this quote. And when you think about earmarks or different things like this that a lot of people say, well, it's not a big deal. It's a tiny amount of the overall pie and you can't stop all these things. And you know, it keeps people in line somehow. Well, one of my favorite things about freedom and democracy is that people don't have to stay in line. And uh, anyway, great, great quote. And then uh, actually I actually have three. And then uh, A.E. Van Voigt, who I don't know who he is, but he wrote a book. And he says, boy, talk about the fewest amount of words to say the biggest amount of stuff. The right to buy weapons is the right to be free. And the, the framers, the founders, the beginners of the United States of America understood that. A lot of people still do. And uh, and when you when we get to our, our uh, fifth uh, commentary, which is about Taiwan and, uh, and China and so on, the right to buy weapons from the United States uh, for ta Taiwan is clearly the right to be free. And then the last uh, quote, which I kind of just get a kick out of, uh, I think it's very accurate and maybe not the biggest thing in the world, but William Gibson says, the future is already here. It's just not very evenly distributed. Two science fiction authors, Gibson yes. and Van Vogt. I like that. Very, very uh, thoughtful, big thinking uh, people. But I, I like this because it also reminds me of the way that we as a society, you know, it, it's like there's this gap and there's that gap. And almost always they're treated as some catastrophic, horrible problem. When what it usually is, is that someone has made a huge leap out ahead. And now because they made that leap out, of, uh, out ahead, we have some technology that's kind of expensive uh, that everybody can't afford, but that some can. And as those people can afford it, it gets just slightly cheaper and more people can afford it. And all of a sudden it can be mass produced and then it's really affordable and people make the investments and, and that gap gets closed. But it's not a terrible, horrible thing when there's a gap. It's almost always because someone made a huge leap, which is a wonderful thing. And the rest of us are going to catch up because that's what human beings do. We see somebody else doing something. Hey, I can do that. And we do it. And then, geez, everybody can do it. And then somebody, somebody, some cotton picking person just goes out and does something new and, and neat. And then we, we go copy that too. So that leaves us. It's a date from August 16th. We have a date. And this is, uh, this is a commentary about, not so much about uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, uh, but about his comments to Hugh Hewitt on the radio. And he's, he's talked about it since then. It's gotten quite a bit of uh, press. And it's about Taiwan. But I want to just predicate this by saying a couple of years ago, a, a good friend of mine, very smart activist, told me, asked if I had heard of Vivek Ramaswamy and I had not and um, said he's going places. He's very sharp. He had written, uh, I've got his book now. I haven't, haven't read it, but it's, what is it? Uh, Nation of Victims. And, uh, and he's, he's got energy. He's an entrepreneur, an author. Uh, and, and I would say up to this point, when he made this comment about Taiwan, he's the guy I like best running for president. And uh, so 
So I'll just uh, predicate it on that. I was thinking I had a cup of water here, but all of a sudden I don't have it. Um, so he's talking about Taiwan and he says he would tell Xi Jinping and the CCP, and he basically says, let the, let the translators uh, get it right. I'm saying, quote, do not mess with Taiwan before 2028, before the end of my first term, okay? And in essence, he's doing something, you know, which, which I've been advocating for a long time, which is that we move from strategic ambiguity, which may have had its day, I'm not so sure, but, but let's give it that, uh, but to strategic clarity, because I think the best way to stop a war in the Taiwan Strait, which is a world war and which is immediately catastrophic for much of the planet, um, or, or serious, let's say, and catastrophic for a lot of people, the best way to stop it is to convince China that it cannot be successfully done. And uh, and so that's why, you know, we've been talking about it quite a bit, but we talk about how, you know, Japan has stepped up and said it's doubling, doubling its military spending. South Korea all of a sudden is saying we want nukes and uh, and talking about Taiwan. I mean, they've hardly ever said anything about Taiwan. Now they're talking about Taiwan as an existential threat, which is what Japan was started doing a couple of years ago, saying, hey, this isn't just, oh, that'd be really bad for the neighborhood. This is an existential threat. And of course, parts of Japan islands are closer to Taiwan than Taiwan is closer to China, at least the, the big island. Anyway, um, so I I look at that and I think, well, you know, that's great, except there's a but and there's a second part. And that second part is that he's basically predicating we need to do this because otherwise we don't have chip independence and our cars and our phones and our weapons and all kinds of things that are ours uh, don't work and we can't build more. And it's a huge problem. And he's on to something in the sense that if our national security state that's constantly running around with his head cut off, talking about everything's a threat to national security, were serious, you would think that they would have noticed that this was a problem and dealt with it a lot sooner than now, uh, because it's been a problem for years. And, and so... You know, he, he points out something correctly, but he basically says after 2028, America will be independent if he's president. Uh, he's going to make that happen. That will be independent of Taiwan when it comes to semiconductors. And then basically, hey, this is, as he calls it, some nationalistic dispute. And we're not going to defend Taiwan. So we will go to war with China in a heartbeat today and up until 2028, I take it after the election, um, because of chips, computer chips. After that, it's just a nationalistic dispute. And there's a footnote in this piece because most people, myself included, don't really understand Taiwanese history as apart from Chinese history. And kind of the end all and be all is as uh, Vivek is, is talking about it. It's that, well, there was the civil war in China and the nationalist forces uh, retreated to Taiwan and Mao Zedong and, and the communists took the country. And now there's still that dispute from, between them. But what that misses is that Taiwan was its own place. Like there were people living there before the nationalists came over and they weren't nationalists. They weren't communists. They weren't, they didn't have anything to do with China. They had been under Japanese rule for 50 years 
in which case many of them had learned to speak Japanese. And then there was a huge cultural uh, uh, imprint there from Japan. They, they industrialized and built up transportation and, and all kinds of things. And while most people think of Imperial Japan as the worst nightmare you could have, except maybe, you know, maybe Hitler. And then, you know, you could argue who, which was worse the uh the the track record of japan in taiwan not that it's not that it's stellar and they were wonderful dudes or anything it was not anything like that and there to this day is is real affinity between the japanese and the taiwanese and before that 1895 is when it was ceded by china but even before that uh there's one case where there was uh, there were Japanese uh, boats and they were being harassed by folks on Taiwan and they write to the, the and there's a, a link to this uh, in the piece, they write to uh, China saying, hey, come on, what's going on here? And China basically says, uh, well, that's not, we don't control the whole island. And, um, and the truth is very little Chinese control at any point. Uh, the first folks to kind of have an outpost there that weren't the aborigines and the and the folks who were in on Taiwan before there was immigration from China. But basically you have in the early 1600s, you got have the Portuguese there, you have the Dutch, you have the Spanish come. Um, and and basically the Dutch do the most in terms of you know building something there. Uh, but it's not long lived. But during this whole time and for centuries before, you do have Chinese folks fleeing China, and then maybe some just outside seeing, but I think most of them would have would have said, no, it was closer to fleeing China, and go in someplace where you're not going to be controlled like that. And so there are all these Taiwanese, the folks who were there originally, originally from, you know, other islands in, in the Pacific, there were Han Chinese coming from China, uh, but the level of control by the Chinese government back in the Qing D the dynasty, uh, uh, you know, the, the CCP, the, the PRC, the People's Republic of China, has never controlled Taiwan, ever. And frankly, China has not controlled Taiwan in any real total sense until after World War II, until the Japanese were defeated and basically people said, hey, you guys take over. And of course, then there was a big massacre and there was all kinds of bloodletting and massacres and, and totalitarian type behavior by the nationalist Chinese against the Taiwanese. And so um, none of that history comes out. And Ramaswamy says, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you know, send American boys and, and girls to go fight over some nationalistic dispute. And and there's a, a huge number of problems with it, with that. One is it's not exactly a nationalist dispute in, in the way he talks about it. Another is that, of course, almost every dispute in the world involving two nations is a nationalistic dispute and and so it's like is it okay if uh uh i mean would it be okay then isn't ukraine and and russia isn't all kinds of isn't that what world war ii was was a, a lot of nationalistic disputes and it, i'm not making an argument that every time there's a nationalistic dispute hey let's go get involved because that's the last thing we want to do either and that's the thing that i think i think anytime an american politician says, I'm not going to send American soldiers there. That is an immensely popular statement to start with, because I think we're, we're tired of being the world's policemen. But I think here, I look at the ramifications and I think you can't be sitting in a car with three or four people, all of whom you've said, hey, I'm with you. We're working together. We're going to like I always like to point out to people that we're we're not starting from a clean slate of non-interventionism. 
And we're starting from a slate where, where we have promised 60 some odd countries. What's the number? Oh, I know it doesn't have the number on them, but I have a list on my wall. Uh, I believe it's 67, maybe 68 countries that we have pledged to defend militarily. And, you know, if you're with those countries and, you know, all of a sudden the, the, the water's getting a little hotter, you're being pushed and some of these countries are starting to be threatened and not just Taiwan. That's part of the thing that I think sometimes isn't realized. The water cannon incident a couple of weeks ago where you have Chinese Coast Guard ships blocking using water cannons, huge water cannons off their boat to block Philippine Coast Guard ships from resupplying folks on an island that's claimed by the Philippines. That's also claimed by China. But of course, China claims 90% of the entire South China Sea. I mean, it'd be like someone claiming oh, the Indian Ocean is mine. And, and, and basically this island is 600 some odd miles away from any Chinese territory. It happens to be about 100 miles away from Philippine territory. It is considered in the uh, exclusive economic zone of the Philippines. When there was a dispute, it went to the world court and the world court said, China has no authority. There's, there's no authority for China uh, asserting that it controls 90% of the South China Sea. I mean, if you look at a, a line, maybe we should put a map up for people, but if you look at the nine dash line that China says is what they control of the South China Sea, you see how close it goes to the Vietnam uh, coast, to the Malaysian coast, to the Philippine coast. Um, they're claiming the entire ocean. And, and that's a problem, not just because it's an outrageous claim, but because they are forcefully enforcing it. Let's say that the next time this happens, the Philippine ship shoots back with a water can. Um, what if that water cannon hits somebody in the wrong way and they're knocked overboard and killed or knocked into some metal thing and their heads knocked, knocked out and they're, they're dead? Um, all kinds of things can happen. This is an act of war. Uh, and it happened just a couple of weeks ago and it's happened before that. Um, and this isn't just, you know, making some plane avert because you're flying in an unsafe way. This is this is much more direct physical contact. Um, it's kind of like, you know, pepper spraying somebody in the face is not shooting them with a gun. But it, it's an act of violence against them. And this is the same thing that just happened. So so give up Taiwan and say, hey, after 2028, and this is the way it's been characterized, after 2028, you can take Taiwan. We don't care. It doesn't stop there. And what happens if you're in a car, you've told everybody, you got uh, three buddies with you, you've told all three of them, hey, I'm with you. I'm always there to defend you. Don't worry. You know, we're we're buddies. We're, we're in the same team. We're allies. And then you tell one of them, hey, after 2028, it, it's over. And, and of course, that's better than just cutting and running. I mean, I, I do think that the American people have a right to review any of these defense agreements that were largely made without any input from the public and without reminding the public. Like, I think if, if a president is thinking, I'm like, as Joe Biden has said four or five times, we will defend Taiwan. We will militarily respond to a Chinese attack on Taiwan. If you are serious about that, you ought to be talking to the American people and getting them ready. There's been a uh, eight part miniseries on Chinese te television about how they're ready to militarily invade Taiwan. So this is, you know, people who who actually speak the language and pay attention to what's happening in China. There are a lot of signs that they're moving toward this. And, you know, we can debate it in some kind of intellectual way. But it strikes me that our society is not We're some of us are starting to get pretty serious about it, that, oh, my goodness, this is a this is a really serious problem. But I think the media and others are still talking about it 
in some way as if it's way far away. And I think it's not. And and when you say to Taiwan, hey, we got you until 2028, it's only because we need, you know, we need those things you're producing. One, I suspect that their their real you know commitment and and motivation behind building chip factories in the United States using their patented technology that other people don't have is likely to, to kind of wane because they're planning their families living past 2028. And what does that say to Japan? Or what does that say to South Korea? It says, um, we can't trust this guy anymore. We've got to make a deal. We either have to build up our military and get serious about fighting China ourselves, or we need to make the best accommodation we can. And that may mean both. And a, and a just a military buildup around the world. Now, I've long argued that the American people have every, every right to at any time say, hey, we're not doing this anymore. I do think we've reached a point at which if we were to do that now, we've really, I mean, it's kind of like you have a right to say, you know, buddy, I told you I was going to, you know, help you, but I, I'm not anymore. I just can't do it. That's better said weeks away from a brawl. And, and then it is if all of a sudden some punches have been thrown or they're about to be thrown. And that's when you say it and then scurry off real quick. So, it, you know, there's, there's certain uh, responsibilities you have to people you're making commitments with. And I think, I think the other aspect of that, let's say, Okay, but we still have a right to do it, and we don't want to. We don't want to play ball. We don't want to play war. Understandable position. If that is to be, the U.S. is out of Asia, and what that means is, we are doing patrols through the South China Sea. China does control ninety percent of the South China Sea. Japan and South Korea and these other countries, uh, Australia, they're all looking, you know, Vietnam, so on and so on. We're moving our supply lines there. Well, well, they're, they're fundamentally in a different place now because they have to make an accommodation with China. And, and I mean, they're already doing most of their business with China. There's the, these are very scary times. And, and part of the scariness of we, as we've discussed, Tim is, you know, it's one thing, Russia, I think, has been a bad actor, you know, throughout its history. Luckily, it's it's not as competent a bad actor as some bad actors are. I mean, when, when Germany was run by bad actor Mr. Hitler, that was a real problem because he was a real bad actor and they were they were very powerful. I think sometimes think of China and I think think of Nazi Germany, but it's 1.4 billion people. Um, now, luckily, or, or not so luckily, maybe for China, you've got the, the they're, they're getting fewer, not more. But, um, but all of that is, is to say, this is not a, okay, we can choose to be in or be out. If we're out, if, if China takes Taiwan and the U.S. does all, every sanction you can imagine, but does not respond militarily. The U.S. has no leverage, credibility in Asia. And I don't say that's a huge problem because, boy, I stay up late at night worried about how credible somebody in Asia thinks the U.S. is or, or whatever. I think you worry about that because you realize that Asia will be largely controlled by genocidal totalitarians, China, the China Nazis, and that that's 60% of the world's population. It's a huge amount of the economic progress of the last decades, and it's a real problem. And our net worth as a collective group of people is going to go way down. And, and you know, that that's a problem. Now, 
I don't see it when I think of the future and I think of that possibility of China taking Taiwan and then basically having the leverage to control Asia. I don't think, geez, we're going to be 27% or 14.3% poorer in 20 years than we would have been or, or what have you. I think that one, you've got 24 million people in Taiwan who are no longer free. And, and that's a problem. That's a real, real serious hit. And you've got 100 million plus in, in Japan, and you've got, you just have billions of people whose chance for freedom just sunk and in some cases went from way up there on the scale, 90 something percent to near zero. And, and so I look at it in, in those terms. And of course, if we were to do that, it has ramifications other place because what's the what's the impetus for European countries to say, I'm not going to let China push me around. <clears throat> I'm not going to let them use their hijacking of 1.4 billion Chinese customers. I'm not going to let them use that and parlay that into all kinds of control all over the world for a really terrible regime. And, uh, and I think one of the reasons they've gotten as far as they have, I started to mention this before because we've talked about this many times, is we have governments in the West, especially our own, that has a large number of people involved who admire what China's doing, who want to be like China, who want a world in which every public conversation that you or I might take part in is moderated by them. And, and that's, I mean, that's the scary thing about China is the brutality and the technological power. And I don't overstate that. I'm sure there are holes. I'm sure, you know, I mean, they're, you know, nobody's perfect. They're not exactly omnipotent, but that's what's scary is that brutality and that level of surveillance state. And we don't quite have the brutality, but we've got a lot of people pushing for that level of surveillance state. And, and you know, and, and of course, the more power you have, the more, like I think sometimes, I, I used this thought experiment years ago, and I like it. Think about if you were omnipotent, you had all the power in the world. <clears throat> You'd be such a nice guy. That first day, you would be so, and somebody spilled a drink. I'd go, no, don't you worry about that. It's all good. I mean, you had the power to strike them down in a heartbeat. So they're going to be a little worried, but no, no, no big deal. What about five years from then or 10 years? You've had all this power. And you, I think the likelihood that you strike dead the person who spills the drink on you goes up every year, goes up every day as you wield that power. And so um, I think in some ways, this our, our government will get more brutal if it has more unchecked power over time. So, um, so I'm going to shut up for a second, let you say a few things, Tim. Well, there are additional factors here that I think may mitigate the whole situation. Uh, I think, you know, I often bring up the fact that uh, the United States is reaching crisis points and we're going to go through a huge bad period. Uh, but the China's is worse, as from what I can tell, as, as from, from the intelligence I can glean from the from behind the what used to be the bamboo curtain. Uh, they have they have a, a house of bamboo. It's it's not very sturdy and it's going to it's going to collapse. And so they're going to be in a bad position, too. Also, I don't believe that their military is good at fighting. None of their generals have ever been in a war. And uh, and, and none of their people have been in a war, really. I mean, they fight, they skirmish with India, but... They didn't use guns. They were, it was like fists and rocks and... Yeah, and, I don't know. Uh, is that true? No. <laughs> yes. But... Yes, nobody was shot. It oh, was, it was, a, it was a more brutal type combat, but... Huh, and they, they fought Vietnam in 79, but, you know, 79 is a long time ago. And, and Vietnam kind of roughed them up a little bit. 
I mean, yeah. it kind of would have ultimately won, and they did move into Vietnamese territory, but <laughs> they weren't so happy they did. It's a hard thing ruling people who don't like you. Uh, I mean, it's just it's a it's a problem. The United States has found that to be the case as well in the Middle East. Uh, where you know the United States military is is just very bad at uh, dealing with Muslim people, and uh, so it's just been a it's been an interesting problem. Uh, and aside from that, I'm I'm not so against Ramaswamy's uh, statement. Uh, that being said, I'm, I'm I because the the import of it is I'll be tough on China until we get this problem solved uh, with with Taiwan. Uh, with with actually chips, you know, it's, it's he's the, he's not a let the chips fall where they may kind of guy. He's going to be stick to it. And as I believe Daniel Kean McKernan uh, commented on your piece, uh, the chance of him getting uh, the chip manufacturing into America in a robust way is like almost zero, uh, <laughs> because gov- governments follow this stuff up for the same reason that China follows things up. I mean, the same reason that everything's going to haywire right now is that so we're dealing with a number of um odd what ifs that that, or or what isn't you touch on something that's really important here it's it's not likely that he'd be able to do that by 2028 but it's really unlikely if you have publicly stated it because you need the cooperation of taiwanese owned the taiwan semi conductor manufacturing company um and so it's like it's not going to happen especially because now you've kind of screwed everything up by by running your mouth about this but here's the other thing and and i think um look you and i both come from the school of let's make the world safer democracy that was the biggest load of garbage that anybody ever shoveled out to the american people as a foreign policy because of course we didn't make the world safe for democracy. We made the world safe for World War II and for you know the rise of authoritarianism and all kinds of things. And we could argue about how responsible you know that it is, this kind of thought. But but here's the other thing. And and I'll, I'll mention well, here's the other thing. It's people don't always buy it when our leaders, in fact, hardly ever buy it fully, when our leaders say we have to do this to save these people in democracy. I remember how we had to go into Iraq when George W. Bush was president because they had weapons of mass destruction, which turned out to kind of sort of not really be true in any way that they could deliver them to anybody. And and uh, But that's why we were doing it. But then as the troops crossed the border, it was called Operation Iraqi Freedom. And it was sold on our televisions as a way to liberate Iraqis. And I think the reason for that is that think about your son or daughter or you or your brother or your sister or anybody you love dying in a war. And and I, I have to say, I don't know anybody. I don't know anybody uh, close to me who died in the war. But I have to think that if they died, you know, on the beaches of Normandy, that I wouldn't feel as cheated and angry as I would if they died in Vietnam. Uh, or if they died in some other, you know, kind of fairly stupid. I remember I, uh, I have a, a relative who went over to Afghanistan and I just thought the whole time, oh, please don't let him die in Afghanistan on that, you know, f- because it's for nothing. And, and here is Ramaswamy giving up the real reason that anybody cares, anybody decent, I mean, I, I, who's not trying to parlay it into some business deal somewhere. They care about people being free and being happy and having a chance in life. They don't care about, you know, the truth is, if you said, hey, we've got to go protect Taiwan or some other place because they're free people and they're being taken over. I'm much more for that than if you tell me because otherwise my cell phone won't work or this won't work. I'd be willing to be a little bit poorer and have more freedom. 
and know that other people were having more freedom, then I would want to see somebody die because, damn it, these computer chips are really important. Because at the end of the day, the computer chip is not as important as a living, breathing human being. Computer chips overseas are more important for Americans than human beings overseas. I don't think so, though, at the end of the day. I think the more people who think about this, in, in other words, it, it there, there's something to what Ramaswamy is saying here because it's it's based in reality for people instead of the BS that we're constantly fed, that's all the you know highbrows, we're, we love democracy and so on, and, and it's being spoken by people who we have no respect for and and who we know don't really believe much of anything except, hey, I'm on this gravy train, I'm a grifter, and I'm I'm having a good time. But I think people do care about freedom all over the world, not just us, but I, I think people in Taiwan would care to know whether their people are being free in, in Ukraine or in the United States or somewhere else. And I think there is a connectedness there. And it seems to me, because we can't start at some point where... Uh, you know, we're building or not building or being part of or not being part of an international order, we're already in. Anybody living today pretty much was born into this international set. It seems to me that taking it in a direction in which we are seriously pushing for freedom and democracy, for basic human rights to be the dividing line between a relationship with the country and a mutual defense pact and an alliance or what, however we structure that and not as opposed to strategic things and strategic things might matter. We might say at some point, Hey, we're going to have to kind of trade with this country because they've got some product that nobody can live without. Um, but let's not pretend that they're part of the free alliance. And the reason I think that, it makes sense to have these alliances and to highlight them is one, I think NATO has pretty much worked, even though it's at its point where it has worked least now because it it you know certainly was involved in the run up to Ukraine and and the country split up and they're at war. So so everything hasn't worked totally perfectly, but this is a long period of peace in Europe. And and I think that's a good thing. And I also think that by talking about alliances, we stop talking about the United States as this superpower, superman who flies all over the world and protects everybody all the time. It's it's just not sustainable. And I do think that we have enough prosperous, free societies that we can work together and have the lion's share of the power on that side. And I also think that that, that sort of alliance <laughs> is more apt to keep the U.S. from intervening places where we shouldn't, where we're, where somebody's trying to go way off script to get us sucked into something that we don't need to get sucked into. And, uh, and so, you know, years ago, I think uh, uh, very skeptical, skeptical of alliances, uh, I've never thought that the UN should be deciding whether America does something or doesn't do something. Uh, and and I, I think there are times where, it, you know, if, if, if someone's attacking us, we're attacking back whether the rest of the Europe or the rest of the world likes it or not. There's there's always that. But I do think that um, it, it almost can't get worse than being the world's policeman where everything's on your lap. And I don't think that's sustainable. And I think you can see that what scares China the most is expanding NATO to Asia. And those relate, I mean, if, if you're fighting Germany, Britain, France, Japan, South Korea, the United States, uh, there's there's nobody who, who, who can stand up to that level of you know, I mean, as long as we're in the right and we're fighting defensive uh, uh, wars, I don't think anyone's going to want to take that that group of countries on because the gross national product so high, the ability to fight, the military know-how and equipment and technology 
So um, I think that's I think that's a way to peace and a way to the U.S. having a much healthier uh, international policy, not only for the world, but for ourselves. And that's kind of what Ramaswamy was sort of getting at. It was a sort of an America first pitch, as you mentioned. Uh, the problem is, is that America is an empire. America has been the one behind NATO and supporting NATO and making NATO work for all these years. And Americans have paid for it. Americans are not free yeah. because they've been trying to make the world free. It's Mahayana liberty. That is the, we can't be free until everybody else is free. And uh, at some point, that's, a lot of people are beginning to say that's not going to work anymore. And that's kind of why I'm skeptical of the whole thing. Now you're pushing for more alliances and less, and less uh, America dominant is a, right. I suppose, a good thing. And I, I just don't think, the more I think about it, and you actually are the one who convinced me that Taiwan is much more secure than people think, because it's just hard to conquer. And right. if if the Taiwanese became more free and were willing to fight themselves uh, in ways that uh, maybe they wouldn't have in the past, and if they were the, the armed people, like Americans are the armed people, uh, I think that they wouldn't even be on the table anymore. Uh, so that would be that would be my preference is to encourage the Taiwanese to become freer than Americans and maybe Americans could follow suit. But of course, what I really I, care I is think that, that makes sense, and I do, do think it makes sense. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, Go ahead. Uh, but I, I think I think uh, I don't think if you put a gun in every Taiwanese home, I don't think it would stop the CCP from invading if they got a green light that the U.S. wasn't going to do anything. Um, but I do think that all of that makes sense. And that, of course, that is the solution. And one reason I think that Taiwan has has moved as fast on, you know, they got a, an initiative process at the national level, local level, and, 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 and kind of really pushed the democratic uh, human rights thing part of it is is a resistance against the 40 years of martial law under the shanghai shek and the nationalist but part of it is realizing this is you know we're in a precarious situation and if we want help from the democratic countries of the world we need to show we are one of the leading democratic countries in the world and i think it's been smart strategy and it's also it's also nice that you know People talk about the means justifying the ends, and and I'm a big believer that in life you only have one end, and then it's all kind of you know you'll see what happens. But but uh, but it's all means, and so trying to get more democratic to protect yourself also gives you the added benefit of uh, getting more democratic. And 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 when I say more democratic, of course I'm, I'm talking about uh, a democracy that recognizes certain rights. Uh, of every individual that even democracy can't override. Well, that sounds like a good place to stop with those very words. I think so. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Timothy Verkula for Paul Jacob. Wish you the best. Come back next weekend. Always go to thisiscommonsense.org, but on Rumble and SoundCloud and wherever you get your podcasts, Make sure to uh, like, subscribe, do all those good things, and tell your friends. Remember that at the website, this is commonsense.org, Paul's daily columns also are in PDF format for easy printing and sharing. Thank you.